0: Who wouldn't want to live here? Quote, He found a delightful place, a dream apartment for him and his wife. The spacious high ceilinged reception rooms with their old fashioned decor, the gracefully appointed and comfortable study, the rooms for his wife and daughter, the classroom for his son, all of it seemed to have been designed with them in mind. Even Ilyich took it upon himself to organize the fittings and furnishings. He chose the wallpaper. Purchased furniture, predominantly of the old-fashioned style, which he considered to be commile faux. The upholstery and the whole thing grew and grew, approaching the ideal that he had set himself. Even halfway through the refurbishment, the whole thing exceeded his expectations. He could see how elegant it would all be, quite comile faux and devoid of vulgarity when it was completed. As he went to sleep, he would imagine what the large reception room was going to look like. When he glanced into the half-finished drawing room, he could envisage the fireplace, the screen, the whatnot, and the little chairs dotted about the rooms, the plates and dishes on the walls, and the bronze pieces. I'm Roger, and this is Bookshook, and today I'm discussing the first half of The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy, published in 1886 and translated by Anthony Briggs. So I take a book, split it into two and discuss each half. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter six on page 61. There is no bad language in the podcast, but there are adult themes in the novel, in particular death and dying, as the title suggests. So just a brief summary along with my comments. So we start off the novel in a large court building. There's members of the bench and prosecutors are there in their break. Even Ilyich has died and Fyodor Valesievich gets excited that this might mean promotion. Piotr Ivanovich, Peter Ivanovich, an old friend from law school is also pleased since it may help his brother-in-law get a transfer from Kaluga. Now Peter goes to pay his respects to the dead body of Ivan. Quote, As with all dead bodies, his face had acquired greater beauty, or more to the point, greater significance than it had had in life. Its expression seemed to say that what needed to be done had been done and done properly. He pays his respects to Ivan's wife, Plaskovia, and he overhears how the plot he is to be buried in will cost 200 rubles and how he screamed for three days before his death. Now we hear about Ivan's job in Petersburg. He seems to be quite incompetent and is given a, quote, wholly false and fictitious job, although his salary is, quote, not fictitious. We learn how he rises the ranks of the civil service and becomes an examining magistrate in a town and meets his future wife, Plaskovia. Now, married life goes well for him until she starts becoming jealous of him, quote, for no apparent cause, demanding his closest attention, laying into him and starting arguments that were unpleasantly vulgar. So it was through his work that he, quote, asserted his own independence. Anyway, he has children and devoted himself more and more to work, seemingly to escape this less than happy marriage. after serving for seven years in the same town, Ivan is transferred to another province as public prosecutor. They're short of money and, quote, His wife didn't like the town they had moved to. His salary had gone up, but so had their living expenses. On top of that, two of their children died and family life became even more unpleasant for Ivan Ilyich. Now, the love between each of them is described by the author as, quote, nothing more than little islands where they could anchor for a while, only to plunge back into a sea of hidden hostility as they grew further and further apart. Ivan puts everything into his work since his home life seems to be falling apart and enjoys the power of being a magistrate and having some gravitas as he walks into the courtroom. My thoughts so far, I'm looking forward to the story kicking in. Now, Ivan is married for 27 years. He's dissatisfied with 3,500 rubles a year, even though everyone else seems to think it's a good salary. He's determined to make 5,000 a year and will take any job to do it, especially since a man called Hoppe beat him in a promotion, so he feels very undervalued. Now we're on page 31 and I've already counted 22 characters with complicated Russian names a few of which I've mentioned already. It's very different to last month's Forster, where there's only three or four characters. Now, there's a change round in the mystery, which means Ivan finally gets his 5,000 a year, so he's a, quote, happy man. He and his wife prepare to move back to Petersburg, where his new post is. Quote, Ivan Ilyich described how honoured he had been in Petersburg, how his former enemies had been put to shame and were now licking his boots, how people envied him his new position, and most of all, how popular he had been in Petersburg. Plaskovia, his wife, listened to all of this, pretending to believe it and not querying anything, but her real interest was only in sketching out the new way of life they would lead in the city they're going to have this opulent apartment and he envisages the wealth of it there'll be more on that later now Ivan is able to split his personality between the official and real life more of that later we're told of an evening party and he and Praskovia argue about the catering she calls him a stupid fool and he mentions divorce he dances with Princess Trifovna quote the best people were there and soon they have discarded all the shabby friends and their daughter Lisa is getting some notice from eminent young men now we also learn that he is getting symptoms of some disease and that he is constantly starting arguments with his wife the periods of relative calm in the house are described by the author as mentioned previously as islands Praskovya thinks quote Convinced that her husband was a horrible man who had made her life a misery, she was now sorry for herself. And the sorrier she became, the more she hated her husband. She began to wish he was dead, and then not to, because without him there would be no income. All of which made her even more exasperated with him. She felt thoroughly miserable at the thought that not even his death could rescue her. She was exasperated, though she hid it. But her hidden exasperation served only to strengthen his exasperation. Now Ivan goes to see a doctor about his illness on the persuasion of his wife but the results are inconclusive. He continues to work and play whist into the night with his friends but his illness is really getting him down. He feels his life has been quote poisoned and is poisoning other people's lives and the poison is not wearing off. It is working its way deeper and deeper into his very being. And he has to take this knowledge to bed with him, along with the physical pain and the terror, often to spend a near sleepless night because of the pain. And next morning he has to get up again, put on his clothes, go to court, talk, write, or if he doesn't go out, stay in with every one of those 24 hours that make up a day and a night, each one of them an agony. And he has to live like this on the edge of destruction, alone, with nobody at all to understand and pity him. And there, the first part of the novel finishes. Initial thoughts on finishing that first part. Well, I do feel sorry for poor old Ivan Ilyich. It's a bit sad hearing how he's steadily going into decline and how he's becoming alienated from his friends. It's also sad hearing about his family life, completely devoid of any kind of love. And poor Praskovya has no way out because if she leaves him, she won't be able to afford to live. And she has her children to worry about. Seems like a pretty gloomy and dreary situation for the whole family. It also feeds into my notions of 19th century Russian literature. Although opulent in lifestyle. It's gritty and unremitting in its truthful look at the hard realities of human life. And in this case, disease and death. As he thinks of his card playing friends, Ivan thinks, quote, death. Yes, it's death. And not one of them knows or wants to know. They have no pity for me too busy playing, they don't care but they're going to die too, fools me first, then them but they've got it coming to them and they're enjoying themselves, animals he was choking with spite and he felt a wave of agonising unbearable misery, surely wasn't possible that everybody everywhere should be contemned this awful horror Tolstoy is not afraid to throw a harsh and glaring light on the realities of being human, of living of getting disease and dying Now we've got that big question. He died over three days in agonising pain. I guess we're going to find out why. It's going to be a tough second half read though, I reckon. some interesting ideas from that first half. Does this description of Ilyich remind you of any former prime ministers that the UK may have had? Quote, In his student days, he had done things that at first he thought of as utterly revolting, things that made him feel disgusted with himself, even as he was doing them. But in later life, noticing that the same things were being done by people of high standing without a qualm, although he couldn't quite bring himself to think they were good, he did manage to dismiss them and he felt no pangs of remorse when he recalled them. I think I've seen this idea play out in modern politics many times in recent years. So that idea of of the importance of stuff, stuff of life, is really reflected in this first half. And I think it's maybe going to be contrasted In the second half, when we maybe learn about his death, beautiful objects and expressions of wealth are very important to both Ivan and Preskovia. Quote, He found a delightful place, a dream apartment for him and his wife, the spacious high ceiling reception rooms with their old fashioned decor, the graceful appointed and comfortable study, the rooms for his wife and daughter, the classroom for his son. All of it seemed to have been designed with them in mind. Ivan Ilyich took it upon himself to organise the fittings and furnishings. He chose the wallpaper, purchased furniture, predominantly the old-fashioned style, which he considered to be comme il faut. Now, I mentioned this quote earlier in the podcast. The narrator is quick to pick up on this love that Ivan has for fine things. Quote, But these were essentially the accoutrements that appeal to all people who are not actually rich, but who want to look rich, though all they manage to do is look like each other. Damasks, ebony, plants, rugs, and bronzes, anything dark and gleaming, everything that all people of a certain class affect so as to be like all other people of a certain class. We certainly have that split personality of Ivan. Quote, the skill of compartmentalising the official side of things and keeping that apart from his own real life was one that Ivan Ilyich possessed in the highest degree. Long practice and natural talent has enabled him to refine it to such a degree that now he could act like a virtuoso performer, occasionally allowing himself to mix human and official relationships by way of a joke. He allowed himself this liberty because he felt strong enough whenever necessary to reinstate the distinction between the official and the human by discarding the latter. This was more than just an easy, pleasant and decent thing for even Ilyich to do. He was acting like an expert performer. During his breaks he would have a smoke, drink tea and chat, exchange a word or two about politics, current affairs and cards and a whole lot more about who was in and who was out. And he would go home tired but feeling like a virtuoso performer. Seems to be a world of fakery that Ivan is living in. He really reminds me of some low-rated UK politicians. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that first half. Now, I'd like to share some thoughts on last month's book, The Machine Stops by Ian Forster. Dr. Oliver Turl from Loughborough University has some very interesting analysis on the book. He says that the story's influence can arguably be seen on George Orwell's 1984, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror. He says, quote, Like many other dystopian stories, Forster has gone on to influence popular culture in numerous fields. The pop group Level 42 even wrote a song about it and it has been pronounced one of the best ever science fiction stories on several occasions. force himself wrote The Machine Stops as a response to one of HG Wells's utopian novels, probably a modern utopia published in 1905. The Machine Stops deserves to be read, studied and analysed alongside Brave New World and 1984 as one of the most powerful as well as one of the most prescient early works of 20th century speculative fiction. Indeed, who can read The Machine Stops after lockdowns, Zoom and Teams meetings and lessons and dislike of close contact with other human beings became part of everyone's everyday life and not think that Forster was a seer? In 2019, his story looked like what he doubtless intended it to be, a fantastical piece of speculation about where our relationship with technology might take us. Reading the story in 2020 or afterwards, and it looks like a manual for the much-touted and chillingly dystopian new normal. On the face of it, it's surprising to find the author of Howard's End and a passage to India writing a dystopian short story. And yet when we'd consider Force's distaste for the modern in Howard's End, and especially his dislike of modern technology, the machine stops makes more sense as a ...typically for stereo production. He goes on... ...in his diary in January 1908... ...the year before the story was published... Forster wrote that rather than freeing us, science was enslaving us, especially new machines. It's clear that Forster was, at the very least, a technosceptic, if not also perhaps a full-on technophobe. We should view the machine stops as Forster's imagining of a nightmare future in which this prospect is realised. The story also anticipated some later technological inventions, such as instant messaging and video conferencing. As the narrator says early on in the story, the human race had accepted good enough as high enough standard for everything they experienced thanks very much for listening if you have any comments or questions i'd love to hear them Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of the next books after I've discussed the second half of the death of Ivan Ilyich in two weeks that's the 24th of November December's two episodes will be all about The Awakening by Kate Chopin which I am reading on a Kindle which will be quite a new experience for me. Also If you have enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the second half of the death of Ivan Ilyich in two weeks. See you then.